0: To the barbell medicine podcast i'm here with dr baraki what's going on man uh
1: not much uh i think we're getting ready to talk about little ones today little people uh
0: i don't know if that's politically correct anymore <laughs> do we need to restart the <laughs> I mean, little children little ch- well again i don't want to i don't want to be sizist i don't want to be accused of that so uh i also heard that you had a really good training session today
1: Yeah, it was uh, the culmination of a long block of training where I haven't been doing much squatting, trying to push my deadlift up, which uh, failed miserably. So uh, back to the drawing board and, uh, you know, still chasing that big 700. So
0: what you're saying is that my deadlift is ahead of yours? For now. (laughs) I had to do it. No, so, you know, it's interesting, though, and and we won't spend too much time talking about our own training, but... um, you know, there's been this notion of, oh, just do what works for you, try everything, and and then you know you'll figure out what works for you, and and just try it and find out. But I think you and I would both disagree with that because we would say you have to evaluate what you're going to do, what you're planning to do, from like known, uh, you know, known entities. So, for instance, uh, we we both know that in general, increasing volume will drive strength up after strength has plateaued at a certain level. We both mm-hmm. know that. We also both know that you have to modulate intensity and overall fatigue to fit uh, uh, the person's needs um, and we think about exercise frequency all, all these sort of things uh, we have general ideas about what will lead to improvement so if a program does not fulfill <laughs> those those criteria uh, or play by those rules then you can say mm, this is probably a bad idea without ever having ran it right I mean I yeah. just, yeah. Yes, you can. Say- it's pretty.
1: It, it, it would be pretty uncommon that you would run something that like fails all of those criteria, and that you'd be shocked at like you know massive PRs at the end of it or something like that. Sometimes something that checks all the boxes might not work as much as you had hoped, but usually there's something underneath under the hood that you you know you have yet that you need to go back and kind of diagnose. You right. know. Right. But usually, if you like, if you have an advanced lifter and you're like, oh, I'm gonna try this super low volume. Low intensity, uh, super high frequency, or super low frequency, or whatever, like something like that that just doesn't comport with what we know about training. Um, it's like sh- it would be absolutely shocking that the person comes out at the end of the th- at the other, other end of that training cycle with just like absurd massive PRs or something like that.
0: I agree, unless da da da, there the training done prior to that. There's such a delayed training effect that it's only realized when you're doing something that doesn't comport with what we know. So my oh. example is this. It's like, ah, you know what? I'm going to run Shaco. Someone runs Shaco, lives to tell the tale, all right, and then afterwards does five three one, And so they use like, it as a peak. And they're like, 5-3-1 is the greatest program ever because I PR'd all the time because they previously accrued all this training stress that they couldn't really deal with at that time. Yeah. but then once they pulled away all that fatigue it was realized and so but that's dangerous because yeah. then they're like they ascribe all the success to 531 and then they're stuck doing 531 and god, <laughs> god knows how many more books will be published <laughs> it's just like
1: man i think i think you can definitely see a, a little bit more uh, type variation in how people respond when you're peaking them yep. uh, towards the end of a training cycle but in terms of like the fundamental fundamental variables of volume and intensity and frequency and stuff like that yeah, I'm, I think we're on the same page when it comes to that. So
0: so you would say then for older people, now we're going to talk about kids today, but you would say that for older people that decreasing their training frequency and leveraging intensity only to drive their progress would be suboptimal.
1: Yeah, so when you say decreasing their training frequency, that implies that they were previous at a higher frequency and you take them down. And yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I oftentimes will have older people who are, minimally or minimally trained, and I'll start them out at a relatively low frequency, but the goal is actually to increase it over time, not to, to decrease. decrease
0: it. I would agree. I actually think that maintaining twice-week frequency, tw- twice-weekly frequency for older populations is a good place to start, but mm-hmm. I, I would prefer to have them train more often than not, because I do think that the benefits of regular <laughs> training, uh, or even if we want to call it physical activity, trumps this let's twi- do it twice weekly, one heavy set of five at weight. And I understand yeah, it, that may be an unpopular opinion, but...
1: Uh, no, I think I, th- I think that if you start someone out in that age range at a two times a week schedule and you plan to keep them on two times a week forever um, and just kind of hammer away at intensity, for example, it implies that you almost feel like It it reminds me of the title of that paper that was published that was titled, There Are No Non-Responders to Resistance Training Exercise, right? right? It almost seems like you believe that they are going to be a non-responder because they will never be able to adapt sufficiently to the workload that you're exposing them to to be able to handle a third session a week. Even if you start out the third session pretty light and work it up over time, you don't seem to believe that they will adapt, which is obviously not the case because every living organism adapts.
0: This, This smug look
1: was about to what you were about to say
0: because you just made my argument for me.
1: Yeah. So, QED.
0: Shit, man. I You don't need me anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Next time, will be me on the Barbell Medicine podcast by yeah. myself.
0: Yeah, Barbell Medicine podcast number 6, featuring <laughs> Dr. Baraki. Long pause.
1: Subtitled going solo. <laughs> going... <laughs>
0: Uh, I also heard, just an uh, announcement, while we still have people's attention before they turn this shit off, uh, Dr. Nadolski will likely be joining us in the near future.
1: Yes, we anticipate having a rather exciting announcement uh, to talk about with him.
0: Uh, exactly, and then... Uh, more, more to come. And uh, this is new to you, because I just, on the way in, um, talked with Mr. <laughs> Mr. Campitelli about coming here. And I bring Campitelli on because for the following reason. Here's, here's why I want him on. He disagrees a lot of our stuff not because he think he does thinks we're wrong he's just disagreeable and and i like that but
1: he's disagreeable in the most polite possible way i've ever heard
0: that's the thing that's the thing he goes he goes that may be true however and i'm like (laughs) yeah maybe he's actually the nice version of me so in any event we have some guests coming up we'll uh maybe i'll record rip while we're drinking whiskey uh in texas we can do the uh the, good old Texas the rip three-way. interviews, rip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The Texas three-way is really what we call it. <laughs> it's not just for chili anymore. Um, <laughs> on that. Note, All right.
1: Shall we move on to our topic today?
0: We're going to talk about kids.
1: Yes. So we're going to talk about kids today, and uh, as it relate as they relate to training, or as training relates to them. And uh, since Jordan is the one between the two of us that uh, is training in family medicine, meaning that he actually sees children as part of his routine practice. We're gonna say for uh, the purposes of the podcast today that he's gonna be s- slightly more qualified than I am to talk about children uh, because I don't see them as part of my practice at all. But when, when I see them as part of training, I will, uh, I'll interject as needed with uh, whatever opinions I've accrued from uh, training younger people.
0: Perfect, and, and I would also like to state this now, neither you or I have any children at this time, and some, to some people that would almost disqualify us from even talking about kids, but as we just introduced, you don't have to try something or do something to evaluate the, you know, uh, sort of a priori, uh, uh, arguments. Yes. So, and yeah, you,
1: you've never, you've never had a baby yourself, but you have delivered babies. So that oh does not God. disqualify you from doing such things.
0: Just a brief aside <laughs> about that. After 40 plus deliveries in the month of March, I, I think I'm
1: good. Yeah. I would I would agree. You're probably good. Yeah, probably good. Lorraine uh, Lorraine would Lorraine would laugh since she's probably delivered border uh, approaching like 300 or something by now, but it's all good. That's
0: good cuz you want Lorraine delivering you, not me anyway.
1: Yeah, just that's just right. Smaller hands. Okay. Yeah. Uh
0: so yeah, let's 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 actually start this thing.
1: So, when we're going to talk about kids training, how are we going to you know, we're we're all about being pedantic and specific, so define what who what and who we're talking about right now.
0: Sure. So, kids so Kids It's actually a pretty generic term. And, you know, the way I would refer to a child, let's say I was presenting a case to a coach who's very scientific. Uh, You know, so first things first is I would actually introduce their age in months on average or at least years and months. So, uh, for instance, it would be an 11 year old and six month, you know, male who's Tanner stage three or four or two, depending on where they're at um in their in their uh in their pubertal Development. And so Tanner staging, we're introducing this concept very early, uh, was named after a British pediatrician, James Tanner. Um, There are multiple stages to the Tanner system. So stages one, two, three, four, and five. And the higher the number, the further someone is as far as their sexual maturity goes. Um, So we're talking about breast tissue, pubic hair, genitalia. Um, There's also been a few other uh, uh, components associated with Tanner staging as far as maturity goes, but we use those stages to sort of stratify our kid population. So a Tanner stage two and a Tanner stage three uh, uh, individual are two different folks um, from an, a, a, uh, a hormonal standpoint. And therefore, uh, there are different um, training interventions that would be appropriate or different considerations to make. Because uh, effectively, once somebody's going through, you know, starting Tanner Stage 3, and certainly uh, once they progress to 4, they're basically full-blown, like, you know, puberty, effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, on the Internet, you can get convinced that somebody's in, you know, basically it's, it's better than taking... Anabolic steroids going through puberty, <laughs> and, and I mean that may be true. I don't know. I wish I remembered, you know, what it was like, and I wish I was training at that time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I certainly wasn't, um, but you know, the the I haven't seen evidence. I have not seen evidence that the testosterone um, concentrations within uh, a pubertal male in the throes of puberty have exceeded, you know, that fourteen hundred nanogram per deciliter amount, which yeah, I don't, have you ever taken care of somebody on on uh, anabolic steroids? Have you ever like done their lab work up and everything
1: else? I've taken I've taken care of two people in the outpatient clinic, but at the time that I saw them, I didn't have their lab work handy. I was curious, but I didn't have their numbers in front of me.
0: Hypothetically, of course. This is hypothetical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: and <then> he, so, <laughs> yeah
0: nervous laugh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, but you know, the, the folks I have, who I know uh that are on um they're taking exogenous testosterone not at trt testosterone (laughs) replacement therapy doses are well over 1400 it's outside the lab can't even measure it right so crazy yeah and I haven't seen the same um those same numbers reported in uh, males in the throes of puberty certainly not females
1: Have you seen what type of numbers are reported for males, what kind of typical range you might expect in a pubertal male?
0: Yeah, so it depends who you read and and where you're at, and I'm sure some endocrinology fellow is going to, you know, hey, great, if you're listening to this, that's cool. Like, I want to know what you read and, and, you know, where where you read it, but I've seen everything from on average in the high 600s, 700s, all the way up to 1,000 or more. So certainly Mm -hmm. upper edge of normal, but I haven't seen, you know, a bunch of evidence showing, yep, they're above 1,400, that's just standard they do just secrete more testosterone and more sure. importantly it does appear like they're more sensitive to the existing testosterone. And yeah, that was
1: going to be that was going to be my next question is when you talk about testosterone levels because this applies the same deal in adults um, there's two sides of the coin. One is the actual serum concentration and the other side is the the receptor expression. Sure. So, you know, maybe during that period of time they get a bunch more transcription and translation and, you know, expression of testosterone receptors on the, their cell surfaces. So the same serum concentration might exert a greater physiologic effect.
0: Yeah, so they get a greater androgen receptor uh, concentration at, in, in uh, uh, stereotypical areas. So for males, we're talking about traps, shoulders, uh, mm-hmm. Upper extremities just you know go go ham with androgen receptor density, uh, and then they all those same existing receptors that they already had also become more sensitive. So you have more yeah. receptors, more sensitivity, and testosterone levels are higher than they otherwise would. Yeah, um,
1: sounds like a good combo.
0: Yeah, the more interesting thing <laughs> is the females who we would you know classify towards the more masculine end of phenotype. So, all right, let's let's just make sure everyone's on the same page here. Genotype, oh yeah, is genetic material, a genetic code that you're born with, and the phenotype is what is actually expressed. All right. So, uh, for instance, XX is genotypically female, XY is male. So, there are XX females born female. Okay? By uh sexual uh, reproductive organ and genetic chromosome. <laughs> Criteria. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's call it there. Uh, who exhibit very traditionally ma- masculine traits from a musculoskeletal standpoint? So that is narrower hips, more muscle mass than the shoulders, um, better response to training, more explosive, all this other stuff. There's some evidence that those folks also generate a uh, more a higher density of androgen receptors, uh, to, you know, steroid mm-hmm. receptors in the sure. pr- prototypically male. Areas, so they end up with bigger traps and bigger shoulders, yep. and, and more upper extremities. They're stronger in their upper extremities, which effectively is the hu- biggest gap amongst the sexes. Mm-hmm. Like, like throwing, males and females. Like if you look at age matched cohorts throughout, you know, as they develop, it the gap is huge already, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Whereas the gap for like running, you know, pre pre uh, pre pre-puber- uh, puberty males compared to females who are just getting in there or pre-puberty females they're the same they effectively mm-hmm. run about the same and then once the females hit puberty they they're faster than men but at no point are they better at throwing than men ever
1: yeah it's it, it's it's part of the reason why it's so freaky to see like a female with a body weight plus press
0: be real nice yeah <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, the whole thing is, is super interesting um, as far as things that influence androgen uh, receptor density and sensitivity uh, during uh, uh, the pediatric and, and formative stages of life. Um, so, yeah, so the next question people would say is, well, how do I maximize that for my kid? <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to tell you that if they're, you know, in Tanner stage three or, or, or past, um, and so in general, you know, general ages, uh, you know, if they're 12 years old or greater, you, you missed it. You've already missed this window where they're super responsive to epigenetic, you know, env- and environmental sort of influences on their, mm-hmm. on their genetic, uh, their genetic potential. So, um, but earlier on than that, you know, I haven't found anything that's like clear cut, like Yep. This makes somebody <laughs> exhibit more androgen density, uh, receptor density or a higher testosterone levels later on or whatever, other than mm-hmm. not being malnourished, uh, not being right. in super, super stressful situations, not being chronically ill, not, you know, having a chronic illness uh, sure. uh, or losing a bunch of body weight, uh, falling off their growth curve, like no, like known endocrinology problems.
1: Yeah. Female athlete triad kind of stuff, too.
0: Female athlete. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Uh, Save it for later. Yes, <laughs> yes, we will re- re-address. We'll readdress. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we use Tanner staging, and, and I don't pretend that this is the correct medium to really flesh all of that out here. And I think, you know, it would be hard to comprehend anyway. So, I implore you if you're a parent or a coach of young athletes, you definitely need to be familiar with the Tanner stages and all of the contributions to uh, effectively stratifying somebody into a Tanner stage. That And that's a, going to let you know. Uh, you know how uh, biologically their age with respect to training, because um, you could have two year fifteen-year-olds, and if one is a Tanner <laughs> stage, you know, early Tanner stage three, or you know, and one is a late Tanner stage four, those are two different, those are two different people, effectively. Yeah,
1: so you're differentiating between what we would consider maybe a biological age or a phenotypic age versus their chronological age, right? Yep. Kind of like we talk about with bone agent, bone bone-related stuff in kids too. Bone age. Yeah. I'm remembering this stuff back from when I was studying stuff about pediatric population. Now, when,
0: when you cut down a, a bone, <laughs> there's the, <laughs> the rings, right? That's what you're counting, rings? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to get the bone age. You have to develop. So if someone's like short for their stature, you got to you know, effectively look at their bone age and their epiphyseal plates. and You, you, you refer them to endo. Yeah.
1: Sounds good. Yeah. Send them to someone who sees children. All right. So let's say that you have someone of a uh, an appropriate Tanner stage. We can talk about maybe specific specifically later about what that actually entails. But you want to get them started with training in some capacity. Say you are a weightlifting coach in uh, Siberia and you're ready to recruit uh, (laughs) the next Dmitry Klokov um, or you're in the uh, suburbs of China and you want to, you know, pull the little child to get him started on the road to Olympic glory, uh, what if that same if that same child was in the United States? There's going to be there's going to be a whole lot of arguments as to why you shouldn't do that, because you're going to hurt the little kid, aren't you? Isn't that a uh, usual argument that you're gonna that you're gonna get as, against uh, children training?
0: Oh, certainly, yeah. You're gonna get people who say that, and uh, incorrectly, I might add. If you take nothing else from this podcast, uh, you have people say that child injury rates during weight training specifically, uh, are, the risks are so great that you shouldn't even have, you shouldn't try. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I guess I just don't know where this came from. Cause I really tried to like, you know, were there a bunch of a rash of case reports once Arthur Jones came out with the Nautilus stuff that just like scared everybody about training um, or physical activity, like weight bearing physical activity for kids. Or did this just pop up out of nowhere because it started getting repeated and it, like we don't know. And I can't find it. I'm not sure. The injury rate for competitive weightlifting is insanely low. I mean, it's like 6,000, you know, 0. 0.006, 0, sorry, point zero 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 six per 1,000 participation hours for competitive weightlifting. Now, granted, that's for adults. Okay. Uh, but... If you look at overall incidents of weight training injuries, most of them are for people dropping weights on their foot or, you know, like mm-hmm. smashing a finger with their dumbbell. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, acute like bone explosion under a <laughs> <under> load.
1: <laughs> nebola, Knee, as they say. Yeah,
0: nebola. Um, or, you know, even things like – that things that do happen to kids like the traction apophysitis – of uh, the of uh, the uh, patellar uh, tendon and ligaments, you know, so osseous chondrotes or or disease uh, states like sure. that. Um, yeah, the the injury rates are exceedingly low, especially when compared to competitive soccer, competitive football. Yep. Uh, e- even things like karate have have higher <laughs> injury rates, but nobody's saying don't do that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing that they that they don't say that about something like karate, but they would say that like a a, a you know. Fugilistic sport, I suppose. Like they're actually fighting to hurt one another (laughs) versus versus picking up something off the floor.
0: Right. So I went and I looked and I was trying to find like injury rates for like uh, percussionists that were (laughs) like just, you know, oh, don't join band because you're likely going to get injured. And I I couldn't find anything, (laughs) just some occupational data on adults. But so anyway, I I tried to go down the rabbit hole here and I didn't find anything. But overall, when you look at the totality of the data... (laughs) The idea that you you can make a case against strength training or barbell training for kids, even as low as Tanner stage two, based on injury, is not sure. supported by evidence. It's not supported by evidence, and I, I think uh, most reasonable people who have have experience in this would say not exposed uh, uh, not supported by anecdote either. Um, having trained multiple kids before, they you don't hurt yeah. you're not hurting them unless you're doing it's... stupid stuff, I guess. But I. I
1: Kids are pretty resilient too, you know. Turns out. Yeah.
0: Turns out. <laughs> I I don't know how many kids have you had have you taught how to squat? When I say kids, so anybody under the age of sixteen, how many kids you taught to squat?
1: Mm. 30? Yeah. Something yeah. like that.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm probably a little higher. Oh, yeah. Given, especially given the commercial gym days. So you know we're probably yeah. nearing that. I fortunately didn't have those, but. Yeah, fortunately, but 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 uh, you know, a good time to train. You know, people in the night in their 90s and sure. people and and young young kids and. Uh, it's interesting that when, during the stage of like rapid bone growth, occasionally you'll get pe- kids that just don't move very well at all. And you're like, oh, that's weird. Your squat, yeah. all messed up. But you know what you do in that situation? It's the same thing you would do with a mid twenties person who doesn't move very well. You're not loading that very heavy. You're right. working on their technique so you can feel comfortable loading their squat. I mean, this isn't revolutionary stuff here. Uh, and, and and the final point I'll make about this, you know, the idea that kids can't squat safely, for instance, uh, you know, I don't see anybody recommending against, you know, sitting on a toilet, a seated toilet or, you know, couches being (laughs) contraindicated. Well, well, I'm just saying, you know, that they have to do it as part of their daily life anyway. Right. So, the, again, the idea that this stuff is inherently dangerous doesn't comport with existing evidence. Um, the fact – the idea that um, kids shouldn't squat or learn to pick stuff up when they're going to do that anyway, I, it, I don't get
1: it. Yeah. From, from the perspective of anyone who's coached people who's a competent coach, it almost seems implausible because you could teach them – I mean there's – anatomically, right, and it's strictly t- speaking from like musculoskeletal standpoint – they're just smaller versions of the adults that we're coaching, right? So hormonally, hormonally they're very different, as we're talking about, they're hormonally different during these stages, but you can put them into the same positions, right? And so you can put them into the same positions, you can coach them, and then an intelligent coach loads someone very intelligently, I'll say. You know what I mean? Like, like you're not gonna put 405, 405. On, a fi- on a five-year-old. Speak for right? sales, speak for yeah. sales. How many 5-year-olds have you coached to squat 405 for a set of 5? In
0: Mother Russia. Uh, is... yeah.
1: Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, I mean you put you put a 5 a 5-pound aluminum training bar on their back or something like that. What do you think is going to happen? They're carrying heavier weight heavier weights on their back in their backpack when back, they okay. go full every day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's say you put some weight on their back. Let's say you start out when you're coaching them, you put the little 5-pound bar on their back. You put little 2 and 2 and a 2 and a quarters or whatever on either side two and a half pound plates on either side. At what point do you reach a weight where you will permanently stunt their growth and they will never grow an inch taller for the rest of their life? I,
0: I, I, yeah, so the, the growth stunting thing is, is a very interesting point too. I, and again, I tried to look for the origins of this, like where did it come from, right? Is it just that the, the axial loading on the skeleton is just gonna destroy your the growth plates you know, and, and therefore, you know, stunt your growth also. I think uh, that's
1: actually the fear that people people don't quite grasp, well, really how adaptation works, but much about growth plates either. They think that if you load someone, you're going to fracture them through their growth plate or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, so, you know, uh, I don't pretend to be a bone durometer, you know, durometry experts so of the, the hardness of the bone, you know, I, I, certainly though, as we age, the bones do become a little bit less uh, squishy. Uh, But what Austin's referring to is the growth plate is in general, very difficult to fracture unless you have a trauma to the limb that basically takes the the bone above the growth plate and the bone below the growth plate and pushes them in different directions. And then you get a crack across Mm -hmm. the thing. So there has to be some type of shear force across the growth plate to cause a fracture through the growth plate or you could just crush the, the distal end of the bone it just goes into a million pieces and then you're in a bunch of trouble but uh yeah axial loading of the bone in general causes the bone to remodel itself a little bit stronger a little bit thicker all right a little bit more resilient and this does not occur at the level of the growth plate the growth plate is putting out immature bony cells that effectively contribute to bone growth overall both yeah. long and thickness Mm-hmm. Uh, hashtag the thickness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that's where it came from, but certainly we don't have evidence that just loading a the human skeleton in, uh, people with non-closed growth plates, uh, we don't have evidence that loading them and their axioskeleton actually causes their growth plates to fuse, uh, earlier than they otherwise would. We, we, I, I, I thought maybe, cause I read this on T-Nation and, and T-Nation is, I, obviously true.
1: The um, number one source.
0: Um, number one source, yeah. Source cited um, that the fear was since you were training and then testosterone levels went up when they trained that somehow this would go and close the growth plates. But Austin, if you will recall from your step one, uh, <laughs> step one learnings, the closure of the growth plate is not necessarily due to testosterone, but rather estrogen signaling. Um, the the bone uh, the osteo uh, sorry osteocytes to effectively close the growth plate it's through a law lo- a very um, long cycle of signaling uh to through different things but ultimately estrogen is responsible for that not not testosterone mm-hmm. yeah so
1: and, and and we know you know from data in adults that the acute post-training hormonal you know effects like if say your testosterone goes up in the immediate phase after training it really has Fairly little significance in the big picture. So if that's if that, I'm assuming that that's the testosterone that they're referring to, unless they think that just like training overall will like cause a massive boost right. in your testosterone levels. Well, I assume so, that all uh, these
0: kids were taking tribulus,
1: <laughs> fenugreek, and what other stuff? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. If you take fenugreek and tribulus as a Tanner stage three, then then basically you you're just gonna be five foot six. I mean, so I don't know if you remember this, but I'm um, I i do not actually memorize this because I just I look it up. Whenever I need it, you know, we do know on average how tall kids are gonna be based on the parents. Um, so in general, for females, you're they're gonna be you're gonna take about five inches off the father's height, uh, and then average that with the mom's height. And then for boys, you take five at five inches, add it to the mom's height, and then average that with the hmm. with the father's height. On average. There's obviously you know, yeah, there's a,
1: there's gonna be a spread on that, but yeah. Sure. Sure. Cool. <laughs>
0: So growth stunting probably not going to happen. Uh, certainly not through a hormonal or through a trauma sort of mechanism. Uh, there, um, you know, if you are, if there is decreased height velocity, which is what the you know, if the height velocity is impaired, um, that's you know what the doctor would, would be looking for. Then that, you know, usually warrants a workup if that's been there for a while. Um, but it's not going to happen through barbell training.
1: Unless, yeah, I think that it, I think that if you had a kid who presented to a pediatrician or a family doc, for example, and they saw them falling off of the growth curve. Uh, if they were to just say oh, it's probably because you're having them squat and leave it at that, that would be pretty inappropriate uh, management.
0: Oh, oh the, yeah. Unless you're getting hit with, <laughs> unless you're getting hit with the barbell and just like yeah. breaking the growth plate, just yeah.
1: breaking yeah. the growth it, plate. It would it would definitely deserve a full workup to uh, to kind of assess all the more likely uh, suspects for why someone might fall off the growth
0: curve. Yeah, poor absorption, chronic chronic illnesses like inf- infection, stuff like that, or genetic or endocrine issues. Yeah. So yeah. Which, you know, Lots of non barbell things. Also, just an interesting aside, have you ever seen Prater beads?
1: Praetor beads? Oh, yeah. No. No. So,
0: so I saw okay. an Endo fellow with a, he had a bead, like a set of beads that was shaped like a bracelet, but he had it on his keychain that were Praetor beads that basically were representative of the testicular volume of the different oh. stages. <laughs> And I've was, heard of
1: these things, but I've never, I've never seen them.
0: Which is probably the coolest keychain I've ever seen. Because <laughs> people are like, "Oh, that's cool. Is that like a bracelet or whatever. Like actually, these are balls. Balls. <laughs> Kids balls.
1: Yeah. Okay. I bet. I bet. By the time he's a staff, he won't need it anymore. He'll just know what the volume is just by palpation. Good for him. Good. All for right. Him. So. <laughs> enjoy that aspect of your career. So, uh, all right. So next topic, uh, this isn't even restricted to kids. This is like anyone who trains, right? If you're at, say, say you have a kid who wants to play, who wants to be better at soccer or be better at football or something like that. Just like in the same way that we hear it with adults. If you get someone to train with barbells and you get them real strong, what's going to happen to their quickness and their agility on the field? Aren't they going to be all bound up with that thick muscle?
0: I like the hashtag the thickness. I, if... <laughs> Uh, Again, uh, yeah, so Tom Brady says that if you train with weights, your muscles are going to get short and tight. And ultimately, that's bad. And I don't know, yeah, I don't know where this came from. But again, I, I, I do think if you look back far enough, what you'll see is that originally people thought that if you were of average height, average weight, average proportions, you were the best. That was the best athletic body habitus that you could have. So this is well, you know, this is a long time ago, early, early, you know, 1930s, 1940s, where they were like, oh, yeah, if you're five, you know, five, eight, five, nine, and 180 pounds, you know, and you don't have any freakishly, you know, freakishly long arms or legs or whatever, then that's the best for every sport there is because you're the average. You're the Vitruvian man. All right. Mm-hmm. And so the thought was, well, don't bulk up. You'll weigh more. Or like, don't, you know, don't do anything to alter that, that habitus. But right. We, we know that. To not be the case now, right? The, uh, to quote uh, uh, David Epstein, the author of uh, the Sports Gene. Sports Gene. Yeah, there you know there was a, a, a the big bang of athletic bodies, right? And the freaks got freakier. So, <laughs> so you know, wh- why why you know do basketball players, on average, have uh, longer wingspans than their height? You know, so just because you're six five or six six doesn't mean you're going to play in the NBA. You need to have a seven foot wingspan, or or why is it that uh, if, you, if you live in the United States and you know a person between the ages of 25 and 45 and they're a true 7-footer, that there's a 1-in-5 chance that they're actually in the NBA right now? Like, they're
1: just... <laughs> I they're just to... Yeah, it's, it's, it's just the selection pressures of each sport kind of direct you towards the most favorable anthropometry for it. Right. So Not does, surprising.
0: So does resistance training cause an increased resting muscle tone? No, I mean no. If if you're sore, if you are fatigued for any reason, then yes, your re- resting tone will be altered and your performance will be decreased because you have existing fatigue. So if you have a very demanding sport and practice schedule, guess what you can't do: run a full-fledged strength and conditioning program where your training frequency and volume and everything else is so high that your fatigue is unmanageable. But again, duh right does resistance training on average decrease range of motion no and and, but but i think what you'll see because you will find studies that show that exercising with weights training with weights does decrease range of motion but if you take somebody who was previously like had a lot of mobility right okay for whatever reason they're underweight or they're they came from a sport like gymnastics or figure skating or something like that and they stopped and just did resistance training, or more interestingly, doing resistance training with decreased ranges of motion, like leg press or leg extension, uh, whatever, then yes, there's some incidence that their uh, passive range of motion has decreased based on uh, goniometry assessment. But but you think about it like this. If you're concerned about getting muscle-bound because of your sport, guess what you still have to do while you're training?
1: Practice your sport. We
0: practice your sport. Yeah. So so and guess what? There's nothing better than practicing your sport for maintaining your sports specific mobility requirements. I, which which is my whole one of my arguments against mobility training in general. Like why why do extra mobility training that's not sports specific when we know that it doesn't work? When we know yeah. that it doesn't increase range of motion long term, that we know that it does decrease force production, we know that it doesn't in- improve recovery rate, and we know that it doesn't prevent injuries. Why are you doing it?
1: <laughs> For the grams, man.
0: Look, I don't look. The only way that you can post a rawwad picture of me not troll you is if you're naked. If you're not naked, if you're not naked, I'm trolling it. That's it. From, from 420 on, you get look, if you are a girl and you get and you get and you get two dollars for everyone who clicks your 10% discount code in your bio, I'm gonna troll every picture that's posted. All right, unless you're naked. That's it. Um, that's my gift to society.
1: All right, on that note,
0: how many people can I get blocked by? How many people?
1: Dude, didn't uh, there's been multiple people who've blocked you kind of uh, out of nowhere recently, right? Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, Killcliff, Killcliff. I don't know why they blocked me. I assume it's because I told people that their products weren't any good, but that can't be a surprise to them. And then <laughs> Noble, I guess, probably blocked me because I told people that their lifting shoes weren't any good, which again yeah. can't be a surprise. So, yeah. like, they know.
1: All right. So we're veering off topic a little bit, but the, we'll save that for another, another episode banter, I suppose. So let's say that you have dispelled all these myths and someone is convinced that they're going to start training their kid and they're going to have you coach them. Let's paint a little picture as to what that would actually look like. What kind of results might, might, might we expect to see if you're going to be training a Tanner Stage X kid?
0: So, right. Yeah. So if you have somebody in Tanner stage two or at least Tanner, Tanner stage three, effectively what you've told me by telling me that they're in those stages is that they're the hormonal milieu or to quote the physiology whiz, Dr. Claude Bernard, you know, the internal milieu uh, mm-hmm. is such that there's unlikely to be significant amount of hypertrophy. So that's increase in muscle cross-sectional area. And the reasons for that are multiple. One, their testosterone levels are on average lower. Two, their androgen androgen receptor density is on average lower. uh, And then their androgen uh, receptor sensitivity is also lower. And all of those things compromise muscle protein synthesis in response to training, which is why their muscles don't on average grow very much, if at all, Mm -hmm. from training. Now, obviously the older the person gets, the, the further that they've, 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 they've uh, gone towards the end of Tanner Stage 3 and Tanner Stage 4, where they're actually, you know, a, a, a hormonally
1: uh, – it's
0: a hormonally viable situation to actually gain yeah. muscle mass.
1: Yeah. I mean you start to see it even in the absence of training. So it seems like they're in a state where they're ready to do that, especially even more if you were to give them a little load in terms of training.
0: Phrasing. So <laughs> do, they get, do they get stronger? And if we're going to define strength as the increase, uh, the ability to produce more force against an external resistance, the answer is yes. Uh, so then you say, well, Dr. Feigenbaum, how? how? <laughs> because if they're not getting, getting more muscle mass, well, how do you get stronger? So do they get a little more muscle mass? Sure. Yeah. But more interestingly... The motor learning processes that occur. So motor learning is a basically big umbrella term uh, that, and it's an area of study that shows how do we learn how to do physical activities. So things like you know writing your name with a pencil, all the way to more advanced things like playing the piano. Uh, and this is a huge area of research in both sports, but then also re- rehab situations. So you know you have people who uh, are losing, have lost function, and then they regain function. It's because they get to use a different area, of their supplementary motor Area And I believe that's Broadman's Area 43, as I recall. <laughs> let's let's pretend if it is Broadman's Area 43, like I should retire because I just, you should look that up. On, uh, it, on, on it, on it. On it, we'll test. <laughs> so we have good evidence, in my opinion, that uh, when, the younger the person is, so we're talking Tanner Stage 2, Tanner Stage 3, um, that if you introduce them to complex motor tasks, they are very readily able to encode that in their motor cortex and learn these things very uh, efficiently, especially compared to their adult cohorts. And not only are they able to learn it faster, but they are able to make corrections faster too. Mm-hmm. They're just better at learning. And again, this should not be a surprise. Yeah. Um, they turn Some of this is termed engrams when they're learning very complex motor tasks um, early on. And there does appear to be like a sweet spot in age Although, I will be 100% honest, I don't have a good enough age range in this to currently put out some numbers there. I know the early for, like, perfect pitch or whatever for learning that, which is a more a cognitive uh, thing. It's usually between ages 3 and 5. They have to be, you know, introduced to music. Um, mm-hmm. But I started I started
1: reading Peak and started reading about that. So oh, that's nice. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, same
0: thing with skiing. You effectively have to be born on the mountain. At age 3, you need to be on skis. <laughs> yeah. So, interesting, very interesting stuff. And so, effectively, you've taken... Uh, a very a susceptible person who has whatever their genetic makeup is, but it's susceptible to being introduced to training and being responsive to training on some level. Yeah, and so
1: they re- you could you could summarize that and say they're receptive to it, I suppose. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're receptive to it. Uh, and then you've effectively made them even more receptive to it later on because now their uh, motor cortex is refined a little bit, their movement patterns are better, they're, they're uh, able to, to switch between movement to movement. So effectively you've improved their ability to move in space. They're a better yeah. a- athlete, okay, if we want to use a very generic uh, term that people are very familiar with. And the more interesting thing that I found is that if you introduce people early on, they have this, you know, we're, we're gonna term all of that neuroplasticity. Effectively, there's remodeling at the level of the neuromuscular junction in the supplementary motor cortex and uh, in, the, in the cerebral cortex, uh, in, in the levels of the brainstem, um, that later on, they do seem to have a more robust response to training. When I say later on, I mean Tanner Stage 4 and adult, in adulthood. So, uh-huh. so these are the people who you're like, you know, that, that are standout athletes or end up responding better, even if they didn't play sports in high school, but they respond later on in life. And you're like, oh, well, you didn't play sports growing up. That's strange that you're better now. It's like, yeah, well, maybe you were introduced to stuff early on.
1: Yeah, it's like giving them a neurological base from which to jump off of when later at a, different, at a later time in their life.
0: Well, <clears throat> well phrased yes so if i could take if i could take uh you know a little kid and not get arrested uh i would uh, <laughs> code code I, rainbow yeah, or something like right, that right, or code, yeah. code purple <laughs> something baby snatching um i would have them you know at age five six something like that i would have them start training and if they were you know emotionally mature enough to actually pay attention and do do the stuff under you know <laughs> but i would have them squat and i would have them deadlift something and i'd figure out a way to get him to press uh, and, uh, you know, something. And then, you know, if their maturity is there, I'll probably introduce, you know, clean snatches, snatches. Yeah, maybe it's with snatch vibe. Sure. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean,
1: you can go back again to bring up what I, who I mentioned earlier. There's, I think Klokov has some videos of himself at like, you know, seven or eight years old, just throwing up like pretty good snatches at that age, you know, and it just kind of confirms. It's like it's like these, these old Russians that, that brought him up in the world. You know, it's like they were already... You know, benefiting from these things that we're discussing now that have been kind of validated by you know this, this, this research into motor, neuro neuroplasticity and motor learning and stuff like that. But they're like, yeah, if I can get him to do execute a perfect snatch at that age, he can train more efficiently and get stronger more efficiently using this neurological base as he progresses in life.
0: Uh, just to, while I'm thinking about it, because I did this, I think Brodman's area 43 is in the transverse gyrus of Heschel. It's an auditory thing. And I think that the supplementary area may be 18. Just if that's way off, like you can crush my soul on on podcast, but I just okay. <laughs> I had to get it out. So All right. yes, I agree. And, and more interestingly, is those, um, you know, with the four other countries that were already kind of participating in this, is they would do a wide range of sporting selection. So they, you know, this they wouldn't specialize early. They would mm-hmm. they would play a lot of different things. They would yeah. sample, 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 sample up until you know, the, like Tanner stage three, early Tanner stage four, when they're effectively becoming an adult hormonally, right? They're in the throes of puberty, and then they get to they start whittling that down, and they end up choosing a sport if that is kind of the way they want to go. And there's good evidence, in my opinion, that those who specialize early on do worse than those who specialize later. And in mm-hmm. fact, if you stratify the elite performers with the near elite performers. Uh, before the ages of twenty, the elite performers tend to have less dedicated practice to their chosen sport than the near yeah. elites. So the people who almost made it did more specialization early on and ended up doing worse. Now yeah. that's kind I would of say crazy.
1: that Yeah, that I would say that is that comports with my own experience. Before I before I ever picked up a barbell, I was uh, as you know a swimmer for almost 15 years. Coached a lot of people. Coached any coach from the age of three year old kids uh, all the way up to you know 20s and and a few masters swimmers uh, older than that. And then that was a that was the same pattern I saw a lot of kids. I would see you know four or five year olds, and particularly in that situation, it was you know a lot of the parents pushing the kid. Um, to train and train and train in the pool. And yeah, the ones that specialized early, they were either psychologically burned out by the age of 12, or they were starting to lag behind the kids who actually even started in the sport later. Um, a lot of them would end up doing better. And, um, you know, I, I, I personally actually started in the sport pretty late compared to most, most kids in, in the pool. I started around age 9 or 10, I think. And, and like I said, I was coaching kids by the time I was a coach that were in the pool from age 3 as, uh, on the young end. So, um, yeah, I saw a lot of this phenomenon happen.
0: Yeah, so we, we should be clear that it's not that if, you know, you think that little Jimmy is going to be a swimmer, which you shouldn't think that little Jimmy's going to be a swimmer if he's three or five years old. Like, it's, it's just... It's, pre- it's preposterous. Yeah, anything that we know, think that we know about selecting athletes early on is wrong. Like, we just, yeah. that we're we just bad at it. So, you shouldn't know. But let's say that little Jimmy's going to be a swimmer. He ends up being a swimmer. Well, at age three or five, it doesn't mean he shouldn't be swimming. It just means yeah. that in addition to swimming, he should be doing all sorts of other stuff.
1: The um, other season sports, yeah.
0: Exactly. Because you, all, all you're doing is exposing the very uh, malleable... And, you know, to use the more medical term, plastic, right? So yep. adaptable nervous system of the of the pediatric population to multiple different stimuli. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately that serves them well in sports later on. Uh, so the more things that you can expose them to, the more sampling they can do, the better. And uh, I don't think that there's any, that it's a big surprise that more affluent populations end up doing pretty well in sport compared to lower socioeconomic status folks because they get a bigger sampling yeah they you can you can identify what you're good at and what you're not um but a more oh just one more a more interesting thing sports like soccer football basketball in this country football basketball baseball have so much money right so much money that they're effectively taking athletes from, from, uh, the, uh, from other sports that don't have much money mm-hmm. and they, and just say, nah, well, you know what, you may be a great track stud, a g- track athlete or a great, you know, uh, uh, uh something else, but we want to make sure that if you're going to play baseball, you play for us. So we're, mm-hmm. gonna, we're just gonna recruit you. And so the financial incentives, and then the, for the player too, they're like, well, you know, I could go make a million dollars doing this, or I could make $50,000 doing this other thing, even if I'm making right. a world-class at that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting how that happens too. So anyway, my advice as a non-parent, but scientist, and also a doctor, uh, would be to <laughs> have your kid play as many sports as you can afford, right? Without, you know, while still making responsible financial decisions. <laughs> and yeah. and when they're old enough when they're that tanner stage three and four you're gonna see them get pushed towards something and that's going to be either self-selected because they're just better at it all right or because there are more people are selecting them for their talent and uh i think i think any sort of parental push early on towards something is probably not indicated and that doesn't mean don't make your kids play sports that's not what i'm saying because uh, i'll use a, a mark manson quote here like the only two populations that do whatever they want just based on emotion are three-year-olds and dogs and uh, they both sh- they both shit on the rug so like, it's, like so you know the kid might not want to go to practice sometime or whatever i'm not saying don't don't push them into sports it's just that don't push them towards specialization right. until they're selected for mm-hmm. that would be the that would be the point but let me, let me do a thought experiment with you, Dr. Baraki. Okay. We, you would agree with me that there are millions and millions of children in the United States who are playing uh, football from a very young age. Let's call it six. Peewee, yeah, Kiwi, for sure. Peewee football. What if there was United States Strength and Conditioning Association? Not unlike the United, st- st- uh, United States Strength Lifting Federation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so there was United States Strength and Conditioning Association who paired up with the Pee Wee Football Association of America and said hey if you're gonna be enrolled in football you're also going to be co-enrolled in our strength and conditioning program because the idea is that if you're gonna play football we want to introduce you to strength training early on and here's how you sell it you sell it by to the to the parents like yeah well you know early introduction to weight training is, is gonna be good if they want to go to college and play football because, you know. They'd be if, all over that. Oh, yeah. And then uh, also there's there's some decent evidence that shows, shows decreased injury rate just a little bit, although the popula- the age ranges are a little, a little fuzzy, so I wouldn't, you know, put too much stock in that. But the kids would love it, mm-hmm. right, if coaches are involved. And uh, so now you get kids introduced to strength training early on. All right, so the question is this. How would you, as a coach, progress them session to session? How many sessions would you have them train? What exercises? Give me, give me your top five exercises you have them do and how would you set up a session? How would you progress them?
1: Um, so we're talking, you said like six, eight year olds, something like that?
0: Yeah, so we'll define it. So ages are gonna be six to 10. So just, <laughs> just to make things complicated. Sure, but, yeah. But, but effectively you're trying to set up a large scale strength and conditioning program for kids who are not yet hormonally mature enough to run yeah. an adult-type program, so mm-hmm. how would
1: you do yeah. it? Yeah, uh, so I think uh, one thing that one thing that comes to mind is uh, little children's attention span um, in terms of how much, how many exercises and sets and reps and stuff like that I'd be able to throw at them. So you know, I in general we like for novices to do like our novice LP with three exercises and stuff like that, and I wonder about their attention span and interest holding up over the course of three separate exercises and stuff like that. Some kids might be able to do it. Some kids probably would be able to do it uh, depending on where they fall in that age range and their motivation and buy-in and stuff like that. But I mean, I think a squat should be taught for sure. Um, and I think a press should be taught for sure. And I think a deadlift should be taught for sure. Um, if they, uh, that would probably be, that would probably be the starting point just to get them started with how to move under a bar. Um, you know, I probably actually i come when I think about it, it's probably be pretty difficult. I don't think they make like pediatric size benches if you wanted to make a kid bench press. But yeah, for 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 the starting purposes here, I think I would just do squat, press and pull uh, do that for a little while. And then as they start to kind of as they go through that process for motor learning type stuff and kind of learn how to move their body and the barbell. Maintain their balance, stuff like that. Um, Once they're able to handle maybe a little bit of load on those exercises, then, yeah, I don't see any problem doing something like we mentioned earlier, doing the cleans and the snatches type of thing to get them moving a little bit more athletically. I suppose with 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 the bar and um, probably do that something like twice a week when they when they start out. um, Progress them over time to where they could train three times a week. Probably start out with. You know, and and the attention span type deal would help determine: are they going to do like two exercises in a session, or are they going to do all three? Mm-hmm. But I think just squat, press, and pull are probably the place that I would start with a kid.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that, and I think that anybody discussing attention span for barbell training with pediatric populations is speaking just from experience only, and so I think you know that, us included. So so yeah. I don't think that we have oh we have on good evidence that kids have 90 minutes exactly. Like no one yeah, right. don't say yeah. that. No one knows that to be the case. Um, and with the, load,
1: with the loads that they'd be using, a training session would definitely not take anywhere near that long either. It's not like they have, like, seven warm-up sets to do or something, right, like, right, to right. get up to their work weight. So,
0: so yeah, and, and I think uh, an important point should be made. You know, you and I are both not talking about running a linear progression because it, in a hormonally immature situation, you can't do that because the response is not going to be... Sufficient. It's not as ro- it's not as robust, yeah. Exactly. So so you might have a kid doing their three sets of five on the squat, which is probably where I would start. Just mm-hmm. you know, if I can get him to do that um, with the pediatric bar, uh, women's bar, five kilo bar, or something like that, uh, or five pound aluminum bar, depending on you know all sorts of things. Yeah, uh, I would have them do the three sets of five, and I might stay at the same weight for a yes. week, two weeks, three weeks. The, the form is going to be picture perfect. All right. And and only then will I increase in load. And it's going to probably micro load from the start. And again, we're sort of out in no man's land here from an evidence standpoint, except for when you start looking at, uh, you know, this neuroplasticity thing we were discussing earlier. I, I do think that there's um, some decent stuff suggesting that early exposure to these things. Uh, are likely to improve stuff like rate of motor learning, just in general Mm -hmm. period, Uh, the robustness that somebody gets to training. It's effectively you're priming the pump. You're like, we're going to give you a little training. We're going to prime the pump. Um, So that and then in addition to, well, how do you choose your explosive athletes? Like how do they become explosive? They're just born like that and then there's there's little tadpoles that are just, you know, no, no, so there's some decent stuff again showing that early exposure to, to particular, uh, stimuli will improve rate, uh, motor, uh, uh, rate of force production. And so I think we could reason that strength training would, would certainly not hurt that, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, augment that just again, from everything else that's happening, it seems like a good mechanism. Um, and I, I, do think anecdotally looking at other countries' success, you know, they basically have these kids start, you know, exercising, GPP stuff early on. They play a ton of sports, and then they see where they're 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 uh, uh, where they're best suited. Um, and I also think that it's important to remember that anthropometry is going to select a lot for certain sports. So mm-hmm. you know, the kid who wants to play in the NBA but doesn't make it past 5'8". <laughs> It's going to be a hard road. It's going to be tough. Yeah, so, so it's hard. It'd be hard to suggest any situation where you put somebody who's not yet at, at their adult height and their adult, you know, sort of bone structure in one sport and specialize. Because you don't know. Like, you don't know. I don't yeah. know. So I'm telling you to have them play all sorts of sports. Have them play weird stuff. Have them do track, gymnastics. That doesn't have to be just baseball, football, or basketball. But it'd be really cool if we could get them to train.
1: Yeah. It, and, and when you put it in this context of them playing all these different sports, the idea of the idea of putting them under something like a five pound bar and teaching them how to squat and press and pull, it really shouldn't seem that preposterous to anybody to get a kid training. You know what I mean? You're going to have this kid in peewee football getting smashed helmet to helmet with another kid on the field, potentially right. taking all kinds of forces. Right. And you're going to put a little five pound bar and have them sit down and stand back up. Uh, it really doesn't seem particularly radical, yeah. and the, the amount of, the amount of motor, motor learning, kinesthetic awareness, proprioceptive skills, and stuff like that that they can learn from something like that—if you have them squat again, like you said, even using the same weight for two weeks straight—you're going to see in those two weeks a, an impressive improvement in the quality of their technique and you know how they're able to move, and they just you know this—it's—it's it's, they can they can almost self cue just by doing the movement enough times that you know it just kind of a lot of these things they're, they're harder to coach in a pediatric population because that they haven't learned any of this stuff in terms of motor learning before, but it really is impressive how quickly a lot of it can work itself out just by doing these movements for a couple times over the course of a couple weeks. And then once the movement looks really nice and clean, yeah, you put a one pound plate or something like that on either side. And it's like, you know, not a radical idea compared to having them play a contact sport or one of these other sports that has, you know, known higher injury rates and things like that.
0: I just also, just for full disclosure, because sometimes I'm wrong, uh, Brodmann area 43 is <laughs> it's the primary gustatory uh, cortex, uh, which uh, is on the frontal gyrus. It's not even, it's not the transverse.
1: Yeah, so your neuroanatomy is getting a little rusty, but fortunately no one cares about Brodmann's areas anymore. Speak for yourself. <laughs> what, I definitely don't
0: what a savage that Brodman was by the way so Brodman's area is just how we know neuroanatomy this is German dude uh, basically stained all these different areas of tissue that he's just biopsying It's like oh this is different than another one Like, and there's a bunch of that. there's four, 52 known Brodman's areas they're all different areas of the brain so I feel bad for all of his the people he's doing that to
1: all the people who had to memorize this 52 areas as well
0: yeah yeah I'm just so I, Brodman's area 6 is the motor cortex so i'll fall on my sword after this all right this is the last point i want to make and then we'll and then we'll we'll uh we'll we'll end this thing so we you and i both know from experience that training elderly population older populations they respond less robustly to training especially if they have no prior background they're completely untrained Right. Sure. So, so we'll just in general train somebody over the age of fifty with no prior physical activity uh, of, that's been formalized or any any sporting or anything like that. They just do worse with training, and it doesn't mean that they can't train. It just means, you know, we're fighting an uphill battle. Uh, yeah. Right. Similarly, we know that people who have not yet gone through puberty are have a very slow progression going through training because they are just not ready there. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's effectively your both ends of the curve. Right. In the middle, your optimal person is this 18 to 22-year-old male, again, the joke is he lives equidistant from whatever gym we happen to be at in an IHOP, uh, right? who lives in his mom's basement, has all his meals made, and whatever. Because so, that's the optimal person to get the most robust uh, type of, of, of effect from training, if and only if that person has previously been exposed to many different physical pursuits, with, to which I would include strength training like the optimal person is not just the 18 to 22 year old it's the 18 to 22 year old who has previously been exposed to all this stuff
1: yeah yeah i think we've probably both coached 18 to 22 year old guys who've literally never done anything before athletically in their life and they don't it's not like they do like you know impressively well all the time a lot of times we have these kind of these kind of kids either college age college age kids in that in that demographic or maybe a little later in their 20s a lot we've coached a bunch of like you know computer programmer type guys who all of a sudden decided that they wanted to get big and jack but they've like never done any sort of sport or athletic activity before in their life and they do all right but they don't come out you know 12 months later you know pulling 500 for 5 or something like that you know
0: no, no but the kid the kid who's been training you know messing with the barbell for years and years and years and finally gets the green light to go ham and gain of yeah. weight Yeah, they they pull 500 a few months, and you're like, oh, my God.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What have I I created? What have I done? Yeah, right.
0: So I see you glancing off to the distance. Lorraine is probably waiting for you with the cat, I assume.
1: She's at work all night tonight.
0: (laughs) The cat's looking at you longingly?
1: Yeah, looking right at me.
0: Right at He's right staring (laughs) right at you. So I will graciously thank Dr. Baraki for joining me on my nuanced trip through incorrectly labeled broadman's areas and (laughs) and pediatrics uh so yeah we'll be uh, very in the near future we'll be with dr nadolski spencer nadolski we'll have rip on some point we'll be on curbsiders and austin is going to school us all on some cholesterol or coming up
1: coming up soon both
0: same not really <laughs> hey man hey man you don't know my doctor said that i should you, you you never been a lipid you never been a lipid so anyway if you guys could please review us on itunes it helps us jump the ratings, so more people can get exposed to this uh, share with your friends and thanks again for tuning in for jordan feigenbaum that's me i'm out
1: and austin bragi see you guys later